You are listening to the Texas Standard. It's incredible. That's how one Amarillo economist is describing the state of the economy in the Permian Basin, where unemployment is at a stunningly low 2.5%. The return to boom times in oil country has been even stronger than expected. But one place everyone seems to be feeling the pinch, affordable housing. Sometimes oil and service companies have had to intervene buying up blocks of rooms for their workers. But as Marfa Public Radio's Diana Wynn discovered... The housing factor is shaping the region in ways that may not be so obvious, for better and for worse. Driving through Midland, countless pump jacks dot the horizon. It's as part of the West Texas landscape as the jackrabbits, dirt devils, and the picture-perfect sunsets. But even when you're not face-to-face with it, there are other signs of the oil and gas industry's importance. In some Midland neighborhoods, there are subtle reminders, mailboxes shaped like pump jacks, and then the not-so-subtle, there are streets literally named after oil companies. Sinclair Avenue, Humble Avenue, Gulf Avenue, Shell Avenue, Seaboard, and Stanolin, Standard Oil of Indiana, My Street. That's Diana Davids Hinton, a professor with UT Permian Basin. She's spent more than 40 years writing about oil. We see oil and gas as our bread and butter, and it's how we rely on ourselves. That's, I think, distinctive. I haven't encountered this in other places. And in some ways, when you get used to it, it's not only unique, but rather valuable. Today, the region is experiencing higher wages, extremely low unemployment rates, a growing population, and more jobs than workers. That means good business for Ralph Mackingvale, the fast-talking president of Permian Lodging. He's received multiple phone calls since we started talking. Excuse me, one second. Yes, sir. Exactly. Let me call you right back. I've been meaning to call you. I'm going to call you back in two company is one of the many businesses benefiting from the region's production. It's going pretty good. It's the greatest business environment I've ever seen. The amount of business going on, the amount of activity, the amount of growth, the technology is crazy. He describes the influx of workers as a tsunami of people and explains how they paved the way for his business. We saw where all the hotels were $280 a night. We saw where all the apartments were completely booked and sold out. So we decided to get in the housing business. The company has rooms in Pecos and Midland. The Midland location can accommodate about 1,200 people. Mackingville says they're completely booked with companies who rent out blocks of the camp. Right now, he's walking through rows of mobile homes, showcasing what they have to offer. The pillows we use are made out of bamboo. We've done some research for some of the best night's sleep, and we buy these bamboo-type pillows. They're very, very nice. Full kitchens, weekly cleanings, that sort of thing. It's reminiscent of a bare college dorm. But if you're an oil field worker just needing a place to crash after a 12-hour day, it'll do. I've been very fortunate in my life. I've been to Rome, Paris, and Buenos Aires. I've stayed in the finest hotel rooms in the world. We have quality accommodations. Here, blue-collar workers spend two to three weeks in the field, staying in this facility or man camp until they can take a break and go back to their families. This environment is a stark contrast to the experience of some workers a hundred years ago. From the early to mid-1900s, oil and gas companies in Texas, like El Paso Natural Gas, set up their own housing for employees. These camps were established in remote areas, often far away from towns but close to processing plants. There were thousands of people who lived and worked at the various facilities. When I first went with Paso Gas... It was a family company. They took care of everybody. 
That's John Johnson. He lives in Midland and is now retired from El Paso Natural Gas, but he grew up in a camp in the 50s when his father worked for the company. Johnson then went on to raise his own family in the camps, which were more like remote little neighborhoods. They were modeled after employee housing set up by mining companies in the West and textile mills in the East. They realized that a stable workforce was probably more economical, was more efficient. So you want to keep good workers and you want to give them a reason to stay with you. That's Professor David Hinton again. She's written extensively about the camps and says they're an example of the robust permanent workforces companies needed before automation and worldwide competition crept in. By the 20s and 30s, companies came up with incentives for employees who would come to these rural stretches of Texas to work. Johnson says workers often became good friends. Everybody in camp you knew, and they knew you. It was just like one big family, and it was that way in every camp. The homes were pretty much identical to one another. Cookie-cutter houses had kempt lawns and a couple rooms. Companies would provide things like light bulbs, repaint the houses, and in some cases help maintain the yards. It was just a perfect life, I think. That's Carol Johnson, John's wife. Families like theirs would go on to live in the camps for decades, raising their kids in a picturesque environment. She says it was nice. I wish you were talking to our children right now because so many times they have told me, thank y'all, thank y'all so much for giving us the opportunity to grow up in a gas camp. They were up and down the street on bicycles and playing games. Our kids had everything. Unlike some El Paso natural gas camps, which stayed open until the late 20th century, most of them started closing in the 50s and 60s. Because of price volatility, and that's been with the industry since its beginnings. Among other things, new technology threatened prices domestically, so companies had to adjust. And the expenses of having a settled workforce in these rural places no longer made financial sense. So the camp started to close, with companies often selling off homes to their employees at extremely affordable prices. Today, there are very few physical traces that these communities ever existed. But still, people want to remember. I was really pleased when you contacted me because uh, my experiences living in, in Phillips camps it, it were really great. That's Jim Case, the provost of political science at Sol Ross University. He lived in a camp until he was 10. He specifically remembers Halloweens, where he'd go to all the houses to fill up on popcorn balls and candied apples. Those are your youthful members, memories with your grandparents, with your parents, with, frankly, at this point, uh, all those that you loved who have passed. For many, keeping these experiences alive is part of their personal history. Carol and John make it a point to do this. They stay in the loop through a Facebook group called the El Paso Natural Gas Camp Rats. It's wonderful because I have gotten in contact with people that I haven't seen in since the late 60s, and we get to talk. More than 2,000 people belong to the group. On the page, members post old photos and share memories. Occasionally, there are reunions. Everybody brings a dish, and they catch up and reminisce about the past. David Hinton says this makes sense. I think it is important to remember this part of our past simply because of the number of people who were caught up in it. But it matters because so many individuals were shaped by that part of the past. It really is part of their heritage. Leaving John and Carol's home, I pass a man camp in their neighborhood. It houses blue-collar workers, just like the one Ralph Mackingbale operates. It's one of the several that have been set up in the Permian Basin, providing temporary housing to a transient workforce. But unlike in the past, when these workers go home, their families aren't waiting for them. In Midland, I'm Diana Wynn. Wherever I go, El Paso gas is always on my mind.
that pressure going in the